Early morning, December the 16th, 2008, with a drizzle of freezing rain falling, few would even glance at the line of inconspicuous Mercury Marquis sedans pulling up to Washington, D.C.'s Fairmont Hotel. Emerging from the luxurious four-star establishment, their foggy bottom home eight times a year, are 11 little-known bureaucrats with their contingent of requisite subordinates. There's no fanfare to mark the coming momentous decision they're to take on as they comfortably settle in for the 10-minute caravan to the neoclassical white marble edifice known as the Mariner S. Eccles Federal Reserve Board Building, located at 20th Street and Constitution Avenue, Northwest. Another half-dozen of their peers had already left their homes in nearby Georgetown or some other Washington suburb, as they, too, are making their way to the same address for the all-important 9 a.m. meeting. Only one of these bureaucrats, the chairman, a mild-mannered former professor, might have been recognized in an American airport. The rest, unelected, immune to political pressure, mostly academics, and save one, inexperienced in the intricacies of running a major corporation or even a small business, were virtually invisible outside the narrow world they inhabited, despite the enormous power they wielded. As these 17 people arrived, they stowed their coats and umbrellas, grabbed a cup of coffee or tea, and mingled, the low hum of their conversation perhaps more subdued than on similar occasions. The day before, the first of the two-day affair had been extraordinary in both the dire picture it painted of the American economy and the realization that they would have to take bold and unprecedented action. That next sleety morning, they met again, determined to take action to prop up a faltering Wall Street, hopelessly mired in the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression. Even as they convened, the wreckage of the previous three months still burned around them. Credit markets had seized up, and fears for the fate of the economy were mounting. With a few exceptions, virtually all of those at the meeting were Ph.D. economists who had earned doctorates at MIT, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and other top American universities. They met under the auspices of the Federal Open Market Committee, or FOMC, the decision-making body of the Federal Reserve System. They believed a lifetime of study in economic theory and monetary policy had given them unique insight to steer policy for the most powerful central bank in the world, the lender of last resort for failing Wall Street banks and the U.S. government's last line of defense against utter financial chaos. Created in 1913, after the Panic of 1907, the Federal Reserve was founded to keep the public's faith in the buying power of the U.S. dollar. After failing miserably in the 1930s, the Fed aimed to be more responsive. This led the institution to find discipline in the rising macroeconomic models championed by top monetary theorists. During the ensuing quiet period in American banking, deposit insurance prevented panics, the Fed controlled interest rates and manipulated the money supply, and though occasional disruptions flared, like the failure of Continental Illinois National Bank and Trust Company in 1984, no systemic risk erupted for 70 years. The Fed had tamed the volatile U.S. economy. Until September 2008, when all hell broke loose in a worldwide panic that completely blindsided and embarrassed the Federal Reserve. The Fed had used billions of dollars in taxpayer funds to bail out Wall Street fat cats. Everyone blamed the Fed. Just before 9 a.m., the door to the chairman's office opened. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke took his place in an armchair 
at the center of a massive oval table. The members of the FOMC found their designated places around the table. Aides sat in chairs or couches against the wall. With staff, the room contained 50 or 60 people, far more than normal for this momentous occasion. In front of each FOMC member was a microphone to record their words for posterity. To a casual observer, the content of their conversation would be obscured by economic jargon. This day, their essential task was to vote on whether to take the Fed funds rate, the interest rate at which banks lent money to each other in the overnight market, to the zero bound. The history-making low rate would ripple throughout the economy, affecting the price to borrow for businesses and consumers alike. Bernanke was calm but insistent. His lifetime of study of the Great Depression indicated this was the only way. His sheer depth of knowledge about the Fed's mishandling of that tragic period was undoubtedly intimidating. By the end of the meeting, the vote was unanimous. The FOMC officially adopted a zero-interest rate policy in the hopes that companies teetering on the brink of insolvency would keep the lights on, keep employees on their payrolls, and keep consumers spending. It would even pay banks interest on deposits. Free cash will even pay you to take it. As they gathered their belongings, everyone shook hands, all very collegial, despite the sometimes vigorous discussion. They journeyed back to their nice homes in the toniest neighborhoods of America's richest cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, Dallas, San Francisco, Washington, D.C. They returned to their lofty purchase, some at the Eccles Building, others to the executive floors of Federal Reserve District Bank buildings, safely cushioned from the decision they had just made. Most of them were wealthy or had hefty defined benefit pensions. Their investments were socked away in blind trusts. They would feel no pain in their ivory towers. It took a few months, but the Fed's mouth-to-mouth resuscitation brought gasping investment banks and hedge funds and giant corporations back to life. Wall Street rejoiced. But the Fed's academic models never addressed one basic question. What happens to everyone else?